Have you been tempted to think that God has turned his back on you? What would cause those thoughts to sprout in your mind or heart? If you have experienced thoughts like that, perhaps it was because you expected God to work in a particular way and he didn't. Perhaps you prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and there was no answer. Or perhaps you've had no expectations But still, life turned out to be very, very different and very, very difficult. So difficult that the only conclusion that you could think about is, has God turned his back on me? In the midst of failure, in the midst of things going dark and unexpected and just plain very, very, very difficult, it's not uncommon, it's not unusual for this doubt, for this thought to sprout up in our hearts and our minds. Has God rejected us? When the Apostle Paul examined the nationwide failure of most of the Jewish people, uh, their failure particularly to believe in the Messiah, Paul realized a potential conclusion that some might draw from that reality that somehow God might have rejected his people, that God would abandon his people. And yet today's passage will show us that such a conclusion is, is wrong. And Paul will show us from God's word, and we will see from God's word, that, that God is faithful to his people even when it seems otherwise. Would you open God's word to Romans chapter 11? I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 10. Romans 11, from verse 1 to verse 10. Now, the the text of Romans 11, the whole chapter, really deserves to be preached in one sermon. But there's just too many deep things to talk about. We would be here for a very long time if we did it all in one sermon. So we're covering it in three parts. The first part is verses 1 through 10 today. Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll continue with the middle section. And Lord willing, in three weeks, we'll finish it off. Romans 11, 1 through 10. Here's the word of the Lord for us. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. 
and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in asking God to bless both the preaching and the hearing of this word? Let's pray. Gracious Father, you open windows for our eyes to get a glimpse of your unfathomable plans. Father, we recognize that the truths we have read and the part of Scripture that we are in in the season of our lives as a congregation is difficult. And yet, Father, we pray that you would help us discern the intent of your word, the meaning of what you have planned to communicate to us, that we would know and hear and believe. And Father, protect us from the hardening that we read about in this passage. Father, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts in a way that Christ would be exalted, in a way that our hearts would be opened, in a way that we would be edified by the preaching of this word. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Romans 11. Some of you have been very eager to hear what will be said, what will be preached when we get particularly to this passage. Romans 9, 10, and 11 uh, is a significant part of the book of Romans. I suggested that it's almost like a climax of the book. Paul is dealing with how to make sense of the wide rejection of Christ by the Jewish people. And from chapter 9 all the way to chapter 11... Paul has been considering several potential causes for explaining this failure. How could we explain the fact that so many of the Israelites have turned against Christ and have failed to believe in God's provision for righteousness? So Paul comes up and brings up some of these potential causes and he lifts them up for us. Is it because of this? And the first one he, he brought in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 6, is it because God's word has failed to accomplish what he promised? And Paul says, no, 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 don't go there. That's not the cause. Is it because God is unfair or unjust in those whom he elects, electing some and not others? Is he unjust and unfair? And Paul says, no, 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 he's not. Don't go there. That's not the cause. Is it perhaps because the Israelites did not hear this 
word of good news. And Paul says in chapter 10, no, it's not that. Is it perhaps because they did not understand God's plan that God would make the Israelites jealous and angry with the bringing in of the Gentiles? And Paul says, no, it's not because they did not understand what God was planning to do. So Paul concluded at the end of chapter 10 saying and giving this description of God in chapter 10 verse 21 but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. This is why there's such a wide rejection of the Messiah among the Jewish people. Because God has been on one side holding his hand against his people or towards his people. And yet they have been continually disobedient and contrary. And for that conclusion of chapter 10, Paul anticipates, excuse me, <laughs> Paul anticipates another wrong conclusion. If God has been holding his hand towards his people all day long, and they continue to be disobedient and contrary to him, Is it possible to conclude that perhaps God has rejected his people? This is the potential cause that Paul is examining in our text. And the answer again will be, no, no, no. Don't go there. Far from rejecting his people, God is actually actively working in the salvation of his people. And what Paul seeks to show in this text is the following main point. God is faithful to his people even when it seems otherwise. God is faithful to his people even when it seems otherwise. I wonder if this message is a message you need to hear fresh today. Uh, some of you may be going through life circumstances that would seem natural for you to doubt or question God or conclude that perhaps... He has rejected you. Now Paul gets the force of such a doubt. Paul is not surprised that such conclusions could come up in the midst of those to whom he's writing to. Paul validates that such a conclusion could easily surface. So Paul brings it up. But he brings it up to answer it. And the answer is quick, sharp, clear. No, don't let your heart allow this conclusion that somehow God has rejected his people. God never rejects his people. Ever, ever. So don't let those doubts sprout into your heart. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? And as soon as he brings that question up and validates the possibility that our, our sinful minds could go there, he says, by no means. God is faithful 
to his people, even when it seems otherwise. And we see how this text makes this argument in two major parts. The first part in verses 1 through 6, and the second part in verses 7 through 10. Let's look at each of these parts and how, God, how Paul makes the argument that God is faithful to his people, even when it seems otherwise. Point number one, God has been faithful to keep a remnant by grace. God has been faithful to keep a remnant by grace. To the answer that Paul gives, the by no means, has God rejected his people by no means, he gives two illustrations that prove that God has not rejected his people and we should not allow those doubts to sprout in our hearts when they tend to do so. First illustration, first answer, first reason is Paul's own conversion. Look at verse 1. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, Paul is saying, God has been faithful to keep a remnant. And look at me, my own conversion. The fact that I'm a Christian. Me, an Israelite. Me, a descendant of Abraham. God saved me. And if you knew anything about the way God saved Saul, you would understand what's so different and unique about this particular salvation. You remember how hostile Saul, before his name was changed to Paul, how hostile he was to Christ? He was a persecutor of Christians. He would go out of his way to make sure that those who follow Christ would end up in jail. And on one of the journeys... To go and persecute followers of Christ in a different city because he was not content to deal only with the people in Jerusalem. He wanted to go to in a different city and do the same thing in other regions as well. On one of those journeys, the hostile, hardened Paul would encounter the resurrected Christ. Christ appeared to him, to the one who persecuted Jesus. And God brought Saul to a saving knowledge of Christ to show us that even one of the most hostile Jews can be brought to saving faith in Christ. If this is what God plans, God will do it. This was God's plan for Paul. And after pointing to his own conversion... Paul says in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's an important phrase. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Who are the people whom he foreknew? It's not all physical descendants of Abraham. Paul already told us that in chapter 9. Not all physical Israel is Israel. So who are the people whom he foreknew, whom God has not rejected? It's the people whom he keeps for himself. And Paul brings up another illustration, as if the first one about his own conversion was not enough. Paul brings a second illustration, this time from the history of Israel, from the time of Elijah. 
the example of Elijah defines who are the people whom God foreknew. The people God foreknew are the ones who, whom he keeps for himself even when the whole nation of Israel apostatized, when they gave up worshiping the true God and turned to worshiping false gods, particularly the God of Baal. Remember the story of, of Israel and Elijah? The wife of Israel's king, Jezebel, was hardcore determined to wipe out all the prophets and Israel who led God's people to worship only the true God. Jezebel was so actively seeking to, to wipe out the people of God, the true people of God, that he was, she was particularly interested to wipe out Elijah because Elijah was the, the one prophet that we were aware of in that time that God raised up to call his people to stay faithful to him. And Jezebel would go out after Elijah to take him out. And he got so hopeless for Elijah. He got so hopeless that Elijah complains to God in the following way. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. Elijah's at the end of his rope. At the end of hope, he feels that God's agenda and God's plans with his people are about to be exhausted as if the whole people of God is now dependent on this one thread called Elijah's life. And Paul says and reminds us, what was God's reply to him? God replied to Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, God is telling Elijah, Elijah, you're not alone. You're not alone in following me. You may think so. I've kept a remnant for myself. 7,000 men. The question is, who deserves the credit for this remnant? God. God kept the remnant. And even when it feels like most of Israel has deserted God, turning their backs on the Lord and worshiping idols, God says, I've not rejected my people. I've kept a remnant. The people whom I foreknew, I kept for myself. Oh, friends, Paul applies these words to explain the state of the Israelites in his own day. Paul says in verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant. Who are the people whom God foreknew? It's the people whom he kept. There's a remnant, Paul says. And, and what's key about this remnant? It's chosen by grace. When so many of the Israelites have turned their backs on God and have rejected the Messiah, Paul says, don't conclude that God has rejected his people. Far from rejecting them, God has elected them and kept them for himself. They are the remnant. And God clarifies on what basis he has chosen this remnant. Look at verse 5 and 6. 
so too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. And then he keeps on and says, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Friends, God is not choosing this remnant based on his foreknowledge of what they will do. Just as God did not choose Paul based on God's foreknowledge of what Paul would choose to do. Paul continued to be a persecutor of Christians and an antagonizer of Christ to the point of his salvation. God chose a remnant by grace, not by works. This is why we cannot accept any view of salvation based on grace plus works. Works always flows out of God's grace in saving us. Grace of works never flow together with grace as a basis on which God chooses us or saves us. Grace alone. This was one of the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, when the Reformers in the 15th and 16th century rediscovered what Scripture has been saying all along, but sadly the Roman Catholic Church up to the Middle Ages and even beyond have continued to distort and hide. That God saves sinners by grace alone. Works flows out of that grace, never with that grace for salvation. And to add works as a basis for why God would save us is to nullify grace. That's why Paul says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Friends, for Paul, it was important not only to tell his audience that God is keeping a remnant among the Jewish people, but also tell, to tell them on what basis God is keeping that remnant. By grace. Friends, if you're not a Christian and you're hearing this message, I hope you consider carefully this important nuance of the message of Christianity. That God saves rebellious sinners. Not on the merit of what they would deserve. Or that they would be good enough for God. Or they have had good enough intentions for Him. Or they have had good enough tries. Oh friends, God is not reconciling people to Himself. Because somehow some people have worked up enough rights enough privileges to deserve God's grace. None of us have. We have squandered it all. And even the Israelites have. All of them. Not even among them. There's not one who could claim entitlement 
who could claim that somehow they deserve to have this status, to be among the, the remnant. None of them did. God takes the initiative to save us, to rescue us. As 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Our response to love the Lord our God with our might, heart, soul, and mind is never an initiating action. It's a responsive action to the fact that God has first loved us and reached out to save us. Friends, if you are not a Christian, consider this important part that none of us deserve this message of righteousness. None of us deserve this gift of righteousness that God grants to anyone who would repent and trust in Christ. But if you hear this message today, respond to him. He is graciously giving this invitation to you. If you are a Christian, let me ask you, on what basis do you see your salvation? Your upbringing? Your knowledge of Bible stories in Sunday school? Your goodwill? Your ability to make a good choice? Paul wants us to learn from how God chose a remnant among the Israelites that it's all by grace. And some people struggle with assurance of salvation because they have not yet understood that God's salvation is not based on the consistency of their holiness. They have not understood that God's salvation is not based on the intensity of their faith. God's salvation is based solely on God's grace alone. If you are saved, friend, remember that God did not save you because you deserved it. God did not save you because he foreknew that you would choose him. God did not save you because somehow you brought something to the table worthy of God extending you that grace. No, none of us have done that. It's only because of grace. Has God rejected his people? Paul says, absolutely not. Far from rejecting his people, God has been faithful to keep for himself a people that he foreknew. A people whom he would keep for himself, a remnant, and he kept it, and he keeps it by grace. But the question is, what about the rest? What about the rest of the Israelites? What about the rest who did not believe? What has happened to them? Paul explains what God has done about the rest of the Israelites in the past and in the present. Point number two, God has been faithful even while hardening the rest. God has been faithful even while hardening the rest. God is faithful to keep a remnant to himself by grace. God has been faithful even while hardening the rest. And we see this in verses 7 through 10. Here is how Paul dry, uh, draws a, a summary of all that has been going on so far from chapter 9 to this moment in the book. Look at verse 7. What then? He's saying, okay, let me, let me draw some conclusions here. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. 
The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Wow, we could camp out here for a while. In this summary, we see a contrast between those who did not obtain God's righteousness and those who did. And the question is, what is the difference between these? What makes the difference between these? When Paul says Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, Paul is not saying that every Israelite obtained what he was seeking. Paul is referring only to the Israelites who have rejected God's offer of righteousness through his provision. Uh, we know that because that's what Paul said earlier in chapter 10. That those whom God has extended his hand all day long, and yet they remained disobedient, contrary to God. The unbelieving Israelites are the ones who have not obtained why, what they were seeking. On the other side, among the Israelites are the elect. Those who obtained God's righteousness, who were the remnant, those who trusted in God's provision for righteousness. Now, why did the disobedient, unbelieving Israelites fail to obtain it? Back in chapter 10, verse 3, Paul said that for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. It was because they sought to establish their own righteousness before God. Trusting in their own abilities and performance to do God's law instead of believing God's word and provision and trusting in that provision to be righteous before God on his terms. But who obtained it? The elect. Now the ESV here translates and renders this phrase, the elect, uh, in, a, in a particular way that if we took the wooden translation, would actually say something a little different. The wooden translation would actually say the election obtained it. Some might say, well, that points to the people who got elected. So this is why the translators chose to just say the elect obtained it. But the, the word in the, in the original is the election. Why would that be significant? Well, the emphasis is not so much on merely the, the people who obtained it, but on the process by which it was possible for the remnant to obtain it, namely through election. In other words, God's grace of election made it possible for some among the Israelites to obtain God's righteousness. This means that obtaining the righteousness of God comes not on the basis of belonging to ethnic Israel, even though uh, the people of Israel oftentimes in the Old Testament are simply called God's people. And generally, at their times when they are simply called the elect, but simply belonging to the ethnic nation of Israel does not mean that one is also part of the elect. So this is why Paul makes this contrast. Israel has not obtained it, but the elect has. Or 
God has brought about the obtaining of righteousness not on the basis of ethnicity, but on the basis of election. Friends, this summary shows again that the result of obtaining the right standing with God is not based on entitlement or tradition or religious performance or even that notion of belonging to the right nation. In this case, Israel. But it belongs entirely on the process of God extending his election graciously. And in the summary, God's faithfulness shines brightly. But what happened to the rest? What happened to those who are not, you might say, those who are not elect? Those who have not obtained God's righteousness through election? If obtaining God's righteousness is only successful based on the process of election, what about the rest? In verse 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, contain truths that are hard to swallow. But we must hear them, and we must hear them in the context of what God has intended to say from the beginning. Look at verse 7. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. And Paul quotes or alludes to four passages from the Old Testament. And these passages come from each of the major sections of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Verse 8. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. These words allude to passages from Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 29. In Deuteronomy 29, Moses told the second generation of the Israelites in the last sermon before they went into the promised land. He said this in Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. And imagine the scenario. They're about to enter the promised land. They finish their journey through the wilderness. Moses says to the people, But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. What is Moses saying about their journey through the wilderness up to this point? Moses claimed that the heart to understand, the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the ability to have all of those comes from God himself. It's not part of our natural abilities. None of us are born with those. Then in Isaiah 6, God commissioned Isaiah to preach in such a way that for the majority of ethnic Israelites, the effect that God intended for, for Isaiah's sermons to have was not a coming back to the Lord, but a hardening of the heart, a blinding of the eyes, a deafening of the ears. And you're surprised, like, why? Well, if you Start reading from chapter 1 in Isaiah to chapter 5. Go home and do so. If you just read consecutively from Isaiah 1 to 5, 
you'll get to chapter 6 and you'll understand why. Because in those five chapters, we've seen, and Isaiah recounts for us, the story of the Lord holding out his hand all day long to his people. And there's even in chapter 5 this beautiful picture of a vineyard that God has done everything perfect for this vineyard to flourish, to bear good fruit, and yet it has only turned bad fruit. And God says, what shall I do to my vineyard? Judge between me and my people. And then in chapter 6 comes Isaiah's commission. And it's not a great commission. It's a devastating commission. It's God saying to that generation of Israelites, I've given you invitation after invitation. I have waited. I have called on you. But you keep and you kept refusing and being contrary to me. The time has come for me to harden you. So God sends Isaiah. And the amazing part is that the book of Isaiah is one of the most brilliant gospel message books in the Old Testament. And yet it's also one of the most severe and clear that in the same message that God's grace of redemption is extended, we also see God's severity to harden those who continue to rebel against God's invitation. In other words, to such a generation like Isaiah's, God sends his prophet. And in his day, in Isaiah's time, we'll read from, from chapter 1, from the beginning of the book, unless God kept a remnant, we would all be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah introduces the theme of the remnant. But the rest are hardened. They would be hardened as a sign of God's judgment of ongoing rebellion. The point of clarifying that God has hardened the rest of the Israelites is to show us that there is no middle ground. There's no neutral status. And the door of God's grace extended to his people will come to a time when it will be closed. Don't delay. Don't think you'll have time later. God is not hardening his or the people who are called Israel. He's not hardening people against their will, but in accordance with their will. No one is hardened against their wish. So if you desire, friend, if you desire to seek after God, seek Him with all, his, with all your heart. Do not hold on to the idols that lure you. Do not stay in this limbo. Will you seek the Lord? Will you turn to Him or wait on Him? Oh, friends, the final text that Paul is quoting from in, in his passage 
comes from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. What's unique about Psalm 69 is that it is the one psalm that is quoted, one of the few psalms that is quoted in all four gospel writers, in all four gospels. Because they all recognize that Psalm 69 is a prophetic psalm pointing forward to Jesus, to his zeal for God's house, to his suffering on the cross. Yet in that psalm, David also called God's judgment upon his enemies. His enemies were his fellow Israelites who pursued him to do harm to him. The words that David uttered against his Israelite enemies are now quoted by Paul to explain the hardening of the Israelites. To explain the judgment against the Israelites who have turned against David's greater son and greater king, King Jesus. When the Israelites continue to reject the Messiah, God does does to them what David prayed for in regards to his enemies who pursued him from among the Israelites. Listen to David's words in Psalm 69, 22-23. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. And Paul uses these words and understands the hardening of the rest of the Israelites as a fulfillment of what God inspired David to write about all those who opposed David and all those who would oppose his descendant on the throne. When God sent the ultimate descendant of David as king, and yet the Israelites continued to turn against him and did not believe in him, no wonder, no wonder that God answered David's prayer. Paul sees how David's prayer was actually fulfilled in the Jews who did not trust in Jesus as Lord. So all Paul can say is, what about the rest? What about those whom God has closed their eyes, filled their their ears with dumbness they could no, no longer hear? How can we explain that? And the answer is, don't Don't put the blame on God. It is not God's fault. God is faithful to fulfill what David asked for. Because those who would continually oppose David and the Davidic king, this is what would happen to them. Does the hardening of the majority of Israelites at the present time mean that God has rejected his people? I would say absolutely not. If you read the Old Testament, you would understand why you could not and should not conclude that the rejection of so many Israelites of Christ somehow means that God has rejected his people. No, far from that. God is fulfilling what he said he would throughout the Old Testament. God's people exist based on his calling, on his election. Paul will flesh out later in this chapter what will happen in the future with the Israelites. We're not there yet. So far he's explaining what has happened in the past and in the present. But for now, Paul clarifies that the past and the present hardening of many Israelites does not mean that God has rejected his people. They receive what God promised to those who continue to oppose King David. The Davidic king, I should say better. Friends, 
for us, what this means is that these passages of hardening should be taken as a warning. Have you asked God to save you based on Christ's death as a substitute for sinners? This is the David King that God promised to send. The very psalm that prophesied about his suffering is the very psalm that prophesied about the hardening of all those who oppose the Davidic king. That's Psalm 69. The question is, how are you relating to, how are you responding to this Davidic king, King Jesus? If you have not yet put your entire trust, your sole trust, on the grace of God provided for us in Jesus, I want to encourage you today. I want to invite you today. Come, respond to him by faith. Turn away from your idols. Turn away from relying on your own performance, on your entitlements, on thinking that you deserve something of God's grace. You and I deserve none, none of it. And yet God extends it freely. Would you turn to him? God continues to save all those who call on him for salvation. But be warned. He will not let opposition to the Davidic king go on forever. God can harden and does harden the hearts of those who continue to refuse him. So take this warning. If in your heart you sense a tug towards God, don't ignore it. Don't delay it. This is the Spirit of God calling you to respond to him. God wants you to be his. But if you do ignore it, and if you do continue to delay it and put it off, be warned, a time may come when God will look towards us no longer extending his invitation of grace, but exerting his sovereign will to harden those who have continued to be disobedient and contrary to him. It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. No one, no one will be an escape route. No one will have an escape from the hands of a God who has turned against you to harden you further. Well, friends, it's enough that all humanity inherits a nature corrupted by sin and spiritual death. It's enough that our hearts are already hardened by the corruption of original sin. When you hear the becking or the beckoning, the calling of the Lord on your heart, do not delay. Because if you do, and you count on tomorrow... If you count that you'll make it through somehow at the end on your own, no one will escape from the hands of an angry God who is ready to harden those who have ignored his grace. If it's hard enough to be under the hardening of the original sin, 
it is way worse to be under the hardening of God's eternal judgment. That is where sin leads. That is where sin leads and has led all ethnic Israelites who have continued to reject the Messiah. That is where sin leads all those among the ethnic Israelites in the present who continue to reject the Messiah. That is why if you have relationships with ethnic Israelites, continue to preach the gospel to them. Continue to pray for them. That God would work sovereignly to open their eyes once again. Because if they remain under the hardness of heart of their sin, no one will save them. But let me make some practical applications for us. Don't use the biblical doctrine of divine hardening as a pass on human responsibility. Do not use the biblical doctrine of divine hardening as a pass on human responsibility. Friends, just because God is the one who hardens the hearts of many of the Israelites does not mean that they get a pass on their responsibility. They remain responsible for their actions because rejecting God and Jesus is what they have wanted. When God has extended their hands towards them all day long, they have remained disobedient and contrary. No one gets a pass on human responsibility just because we believe the doctrine of divine hardening. Second, don't use the biblical teaching of God's hardening hearts as a fatalism. Don't use it as a fatalism. As long as this gospel is preached, we must always call on people to put their faith in Jesus and pray that they would and wait on God to work that they would before it's too late. God saved a hostile Saul who was on his way to persecute Christians. God can unharden hardened hearts. God can replace hardened hearts with hearts of flesh. So don't be fatalistic as we uphold the doctrine of divine hardening. Keep evangelizing. Keep praying. Keep asking God to work. Somehow in his unfathomable plan for us, God works his mercy and electing grace and his divine hardening. He holds both together. We must believe in both. The biblical teaching about divine hardening, I told you how not to view it, how not to use it. Not in a, as a pass to human responsibility, not in a fatalistic way. So how should you use it in a helpful way? Use it as a warning. As a warning that there is no middle ground. As a warning against delaying, use it to call you to respond to the Lord now. Either one is responding to God's electing grace by placing their trust in Christ for salvation, or one remains on the trajectory of divine hardening. But let me also speak to those, perhaps parents who have adult children, who your children have been rejecting the grace of God 
for such a long time. It is not for you and I to determine whether or not they have reached the stage of divine hardening. We don't know. Keep praying. Keep hoping. Keep evangelizing. Keep trusting that our God is faithful to keep a remnant of people whom he has foreknown. As Spurgeon said, pray that God would save all the elect and elect some more. We don't know who are those whom God has elected. We must hold both that God elects by grace and God keeps those whom he elects. God will bring them home. And yet, at the same time, God is faithful, whether in electing sinners or hardening rebellious people. God has not rejected his people. Actually, the opposite is true. God has elected his people. And God works effectually for his people to keep a remnant for himself. And he has made that choice by grace. This is the God who is faithful and gracious. Would you trust him? Don't treat his word with trivialness. Let the news of divine hardening awaken your heart to the fear that a day may come when it will be too late for you to turn to God. It is God's grace who teaches us even to fear that day. We will sing about that grace. The God of divine hardening is the same God who extends his hand all day long. Both facets of this God are held together. Don't test God with his patience forever. Respond to him today so that it may become clear to all that you are part of his elect. Let's pray.